Acts chapter 18. We've been working our way through this book. We saw last time Paul's ministry in Corinth, and now we see more ministry, mostly in Ephesus, both with and without Paul, as Paul travels around the eastern Mediterranean, going from Ephesus, which is on the European end of what is today Turkey. He went from there all the way back to Syria to visit Antioch. He stopped in Israel and visited Jerusalem. And then he comes back to Ephesus in our text. Meanwhile, Luke diverges from Paul for a few moments and shows us three other people ministering in the church. As if to say, Paul is not the be-all, end-all. When Paul is gone, the church continues. If Paul is not there to do ministry, God raises up other people to do ministry. So listen to the word of God, Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while in Corinth. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And they asked him to stay a little longer with them. He did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you again if God wills. And he sailed from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts to understand your word. We thank you for maps and other things that help us to understand where all these locations are as we hear this blizzard of names. Father, help us not to get lost in the geographical detail, but to see the point that the church continues, that ministry continues, whether Paul is present or absent. You still care for your people. You still raise up teachers for them. Help us then to listen to the teaching of your word and to be changed by it. We praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is one of those texts where in order to really understand what you just read, you need to turn to the back of your Bible. Almost all Bibles have a map in the back of Paul's missionary journeys. And you can see there in the maps section most of the places that are mentioned. And usually they're connected by some kind of little line that shows where Paul went in his missionary journeyings. It seems that Luke introduces at least one place name every other verse, and if you are not well up on your ancient geography, you read this text and say, where did they go? What happened? 
Where is this? Uh, most of us probably don't know our own state well enough to follow us a paragraph like this that introduces the name of a different city every other word. But this is what Paul did. He was in Greece, in Corinth, and roughly speaking, he went across to Turkey, stayed there for a couple of days, and then went back to Israel, and then went overland from Israel through Turkey back to the European end of Turkey. So that's roughly what happened here. Luke is interested in those movements, not because they're movements, not because it's people traveling around, but to make his point that the kingdom continues to grow through ministers old and new, with and without Paul. He also gives us a couple of details to remind us that the kingdom of God is always connected to its two roots. One root is a text, the Bible, The other route is a place, the city of Jerusalem. And no matter how far the kingdom grows, it will always remain connected to both of those things, to the Bible and to Jerusalem. And that's why uh, all of us, all Christians, who go to Jerusalem will come back and tell you it's an amazing experience. Because that is one of the main roots of our faith. The other route being the word here. Well, let's look at this a little bit. Paul heads home. That's what happens first. He's in Corinth. Then he leaves to go back to his home church in Syrian Antioch. He took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. Priscilla and Aquila are with him. We met them at the beginning of this chapter. They're also Jews like Paul who are believers and worked with him in Corinth. So Paul goes from Corinth and he goes down to the eastern port of Corinth, which is the city of Sincrea, and there he cuts his hair. Now, why does Luke mention this? How many biblical characters get haircuts? Well, there's one really famous haircut in the Bible, Samson. Delilah cuts off his hair and then hands him over to the Philistines. But this is another haircut because it says he had taken a vow. Now, people drive themselves nuts over this. What sort of vow did Paul take? Why did he take a vow? Why did he cut his hair in Sincrea? The answer is, we have no idea. But the further answer, why does Luke put this in here, is because he's telling us that no matter how far the kingdom grows, it's always rooted in the Bible. If you go back to, what is it, I believe Numbers chapter 5, you have the instructions for the Nazarite vow. And if you took this vow, that was for a certain period of time, and you were obligated to no wine, and in fact, nothing grape of any kind. No grapes, no grape jelly, no using grape vines for something, no grape leaves, and definitely no wine. And so you abstain from wine and from women for the period of this vow, And then when it was done, oh, you also abstained from haircuts. When the vow was done, you cut your hair off to say, okay, the vow is done. And presumably, of course, you treated yourself to a bottle of something, red or white, whatever your favorite was. But that's not specifically mentioned. When the vow is over, you don't have to get a bottle of wine, but you do have to cut your hair. So Paul 
does this. Why does Paul do it? Well, Luke mentions it just to tell us the kingdom is rooted in the Bible. Wherever it goes, if it's in Corinth, if it's in Sincrea, if it's out in the middle of nowhere, God's rule is related to, springs from what's in the Bible. And this Nazarite vow is in the Bible. So Paul takes the vow and cuts his hair. The Bible specifically defines what acceptable spirituality is, including this Nazarite vow. So then, newly shorn, he comes to Ephesus, and he goes into the synagogue, as he usually does, and reasoned with the Jews. Now, we've seen Paul speaking to Jewish people, his own Jewish people in the synagogues in various cities. This is the first city where they've said, tell me more. Usually, what do they say? Tell me less. Get out of here, Paul. We're sick and tired of your proclamation. But here they say, tell us more. And Paul says, no. Nope, I'm out of here. Again, this seems utterly baffling. Paul, you've devoted your life traveling around preaching the gospel and you finally found people who want to hear it and the first thing you do is get out of town. Now, the word retirement is not in the Bible. But Paul shows us what it looks like to take a break. He knew that he needed to get back to Syria, get back to his home church, reconnect, recharge, get ready to come out and minister some more. And so, rather than overdoing it, he had the guts to say, nope, I've done what I can, I need to go. Someone else can minister here in Ephesus. And he also says, I will come back if God wills. So Paul knows how to do two things. He knows how to take a break, and he knows how to commit his future to God. Well, that's a lesson that all of us can and should learn. The kingdom doesn't come by us knocking ourselves out, tearing ourselves to pieces, overworking all the time. There's more to do, there's more to do, there's more to do. Of course there was more to do. But God didn't say, Paul, I want you to work yourself to death. He said, Paul, take a break. Paul, commit your future to me. Which he does. Right. When can you take a break? Well, you can take a break when you know that your future is safe. And if you're the one who determines what your future is, you can't take that break. Because... The only way to safeguard the future is to keep working, keep striving, keep lining things up. Paul, though, knows that he'll come back if God wills, and if God doesn't will, that's okay. Somebody else will minister in Ephesus. As it turns out, of course, somebody else does minister in Ephesus. We'll see that in a moment, but we follow Paul, who goes back to Caesarea, which is a port in the land of Israel, he, got, he went up and greeted the church. What Luke means is that he went up to Jerusalem and said hi to the church there. And then he went down to Antioch and saw his home church. After he had spent some time there, he departed and finally got to do what he wanted to do back in chapter 15. That is, visit all the churches from the first missionary journey. 
He didn't get to do it right away. On the second missionary journey, remember God told him, no, don't visit those churches. Now here in verse 23, he's finally going all over Galatia and Phrygia to strengthen the disciples. So Paul takes a break, commits his future to God, and is able, in the strength of that break, to continue doing his job, to continue in ministry. Meanwhile, at Ephesus, this guy named Apollos shows up. Luke tells us several things about him. But what is his broader point? The kingdom is not limited to one location or to one man. Don't think that, oh, Paul is on break. Nothing can be done. That may be how it is at the DMV when you go to get your license. And you're in line. Oh, everyone is on break. Well, I guess I won't be getting my license right now. But that is not how God runs his kingdom. Paul is on break, but Apollos is on duty. Apollos is an Egyptian. He's from the city of Alexandria. Alexandria, remember, is the second largest city in the Roman Empire. If you can think of Rome as New York, the largest city in America, the, the capital in a certain sense, certainly the financial capital and the cultural capital, print culture, our second largest city is Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is warmer. It's nicer than New York in terms of weather. And it has a lot of things that the capital doesn't have. Well, that's Alexandria. That's where Apollos is from. He's not from Podunkville like Paul. He is from a very sophisticated place. Remember, Alexandria had the greatest library in the ancient world, the largest group of scholars. It was a place of learning as well as the hub of Egyptian grain. Today, Egyptian, Egypt imports its wheat. In those days, Egypt grew wheat and fed the rest of the Roman Empire. So, Apollos, like so many of the other people in the book of Acts, is an immigrant, or at least somebody traveling within the empire, born in one place, going to other places. And he comes to Ephesus, which was not a small city either. Ephesus was probably the fourth largest city in the empire. So the ministry in Acts, as we understand it, Paul's home base is Syrian Antioch. That's the third largest city in the empire, with Ephesus being the fourth largest city. So we have Rome, we have Alexandria, we have Syrian Antioch, and we have Ephesus, and a lot of ministry happens in these four largest cities. In the contemporary United States, what are those four? New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Houston are four biggest cities. Well, that is where, where Paul and Apollos and the others are going and doing their ministry. They don't head for places like Gillette in the first instance. They go to the big places and evangelize there. So what is Apollos like? He's eloquent. That's the first thing Luke tells us. He is able to speak beautifully and project this majestic vista in the mind of everyone who hears him. Well, this is a double-edged skill. 
for sure. We all know eloquent people. Some of them go into public life and speak in front of Congress, but the fact of the matter is most politicians, at least in our world, are not particularly eloquent. Apollos is. Most preachers are not particularly eloquent either. They may be able to talk and even talk smoothly. But Apollos goes way beyond that. He's gifted with the ability to speak beautifully, compellingly. Supposedly, George Whitfield, American preacher in the 1700s, had the ability to pronounce the word Mesopotamia in a way that would make the whole congregation start to cry. That's eloquence. <laughs> Just make everyone Mesopotamia. Well, that's Apollos. When he opens his mouth and starts to talk, you don't want to look at your phone. You aren't looking at the clock. You're saying, wow, this is amazing. I haven't heard words like this since I last watched Hamlet. Right? Shakespeare's characters have this ability to be eloquent. That's why Shakespeare is so loved and memorable. And the same thing goes for movies. There's spectacle, sure, but what do you remember from movie? You remember the lines, the quotability factor. Well, that's Apollos. He's eloquent. The second thing that he is, is mighty in the scriptures. He's not weak in his knowledge of the Bible. He's mighty. If you ask him any Bible question, he knows the answer. If you say, I'm wondering about this topic, wondering about food offered to idols, I'm wondering about divorce, I'm wondering about prayer, I'm wondering about the names of God, name it. Apollos can tell you all the important passages on that subject. Now, most of us are never going to be eloquent. That's not a gifting that is in reach of the average human being. But all of us should be stronger in Scripture than we are. You can gain some eloquence by practicing being like Demosthenes and filling your mouth with marbles and trying to speak clearly through the marbles. But you can gain much facility, much strength in Scripture by spending time reading it, memorizing it, practicing it, getting familiar with it, listening to it. Apollos is mighty in the Scriptures. He's also instructed. He had, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, you'll often hear people say, well, the Bible never says preachers need seminary degrees. Sure, it doesn't say that. But it clearly says that if you're not taught, you don't know. Apollos didn't teach himself the way of the Lord. He had been taught it by somebody else. If you're going to be effective as a servant of Jesus, you need to be taught by somebody who knows how to serve Jesus. We know that that's true across a bunch of disciplines. Our culture may take it too far with all the certifications that are required for various things. But Luke makes it clear, Apollos is taught. He had been instructed. And if you want to be a good servant of God, you have to be taught as well. He was fervent in spirit and he spoke and taught 
accurately. Now, being fervent in spirit, being somebody who's bursting with excitement, on fire for Jesus, this is something that Paul tells every Christian to be in Romans 12. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. This doesn't mean that every Christian has to have a bouncy personality. But it does mean that every Christian needs to be excited about Jesus. Now, excitement looks different for the reserved Norwegian and the excitable Cuban. Absolutely. We understand that you're never going to get the Norwegian to wave his arms around and talk like an Italian. Doesn't happen. But that doesn't mean that Norwegians can't get excited. And that is what... In fact, Luke says, being fervent, he spoke and taught accurately. Now, isn't that interesting? Luke connects accuracy to excitement. We tend to think that the two are are enemies of each other. Oh, I'm sorry, I got excited and I misspoke. We had that a couple of weeks ago where our president said, I was just filled with moral outrage, so I said something that I don't exactly mean. But Luke tells us he was excited, he was fervent, and that's why he was accurate. How does those those two things go together? Well, part of it is that being excited about something leads you to actually dig in and learn about your subject. Somebody who is excited about a subject spends more time studying or what we call geeking out. That's part of it. But the other part of it is that this subject is truly amazing. That is, if I stand up here and tell you in a bored way, like I'm presenting some kind of Imshaw certification or something, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus is coming back, I hope you all get this. You say, okay, there's a mismatch between the content of the words and the level of caring in the speaker. If the speaker doesn't care, why should I care? If I'm at yet another HR training and we're all just here because somebody at corporate is covering their tail and the speaker doesn't care and the audience doesn't care and PowerPoint doesn't care, we're just all here to say it happened. Apollos wasn't like that. When you went to hear him preach, you felt his excitement. This guy cares. This guy says Jesus came to save the world and it's clear that he actually believes that the world is being saved and he's thrilled about it. Well, that's different. That helps you, that ethos of the speaker who seems to actually believe what he's saying and care about it makes a big difference in helping you believe what he's saying and care about it. Apollos was no ignoramus. He wasn't just excited. He was taught and he was accurate as well as being excited. He knew scripture. He knew Jesus. And that helped him be on fire. Luke, the final characteristic Luke gives is that he was accurate. He's taught accurately 
the things of the Lord. Why is accuracy important? The answer is, it's important because we're not making this stuff up. Some of you, no doubt, are familiar with the word retconned. Retconned, it's a term from the comic book world. It's short for retroactive continuity. Some writer for this comic company in 1972 wrote that this character has X characteristic. Then somebody came along in 1995 and wrote a different comic about that character and gave him Y characteristic. And now, in 2022, we're going to create a sequel that tries to merge those two, and so we retcon the tar out of both originals in order to come up with something that kind of fits when it really is stupid. That doesn't happen in the Christian faith. At least the goal is that there's no retconning. There's no retroactive continuity in the Bible. There's nothing where John comes along in the first century and says, well, Daniel wrote 700 years ago and Daniel, or Daniel wrote 500 years ago and Daniel, well, he needs a little tweaking. Let's see if we can fix this. No, it's not all made up. It's not like comic book characters where in 1972 I can say one thing about the Incredible Hulk and I can say eight different things about him over the next 50 years and then in 2022 try to sew them all together in some crazy retcon quilt. Rather, the whole book hangs together. It's accurate. And so the goal of Christian teaching is to convey that accuracy. To say, I'm not making this up. I'm teaching the truth, and that's why accuracy is important. This is a real world thing that really happened at a real point in time, in a real place, and therefore accuracy comes into it. Well, the charge is justly leveled against religion in general that accuracy has nothing to do with it and that it's about making people feel good and that Lord Shiva never actually did X, Y, and Z with Brahma or that the angel Moroni never actually appeared to Joseph Smith and gave him the plates of reformed Egyptian or that the prophet Muhammad never actually went up into heaven on the back of his horse or whatever it is that he's claimed to have done and and so on. We agree here in the Christian faith that those things were made up. But the Bible says this is not made up. Moses says, I was there at Sinai and I heard God speak and here's what he said. John says, I was there with Jesus and I heard him speak and here's what he said. Paul says, Apollo says, this is the truth, and therefore accuracy is part of the equation. That is, you can claim to be a Christian teacher and fail to be accurate. We're accustomed to Hollywood taking fictional books and writing their own fictional takes on them in fictional movies. And we can say, well, that's not accurate to the original, but the fact is it was all made up. This is different. Apollos taught 
the truth, and that's why accuracy is a key category. But what's fascinating, he didn't even know the fullness of Christian baptism. He only knew the baptism of John the Baptist. Nonetheless, he's preaching boldly in the synagogue. Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Luke just told us he was accurate. And now we have more accuracy coming into his teachings. Now, how is that possible? Well, the room for improvement is the biggest room in the world. Apollos taught the truth, but he didn't understand all of the truth. Certainly that's true about baptism. The sacraments are the most complicated part of Christian teaching. And we could all grow in our accuracy of understanding them. That was true of Apollos. Now this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, take him aside and explain the way of God more accurately. What does that mean? Well, that means that in coffee shops or in the side room of some public building or at home, they said, Apollos, you said X, Y, Z in your sermon yesterday. Let's look at the Bible and see more. You could have said it better. You could have been more accurate, more precise. Put that better into a context that would help people understand all sides of that truth. Now, some feminist commentators read this and say, aha, Priscilla taught him. Therefore, women should come and preach in church. That's not what Luke said. He says specifically that Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and then explained to him But what is Luke saying? Yeah, ladies, go for it. If you hear me or any preacher say something and you're like, I don't think that's accurate. Take him aside, take me aside and say, I think a more accurate way to say that would be, and then spell it out. What is Luke saying? Don't ever say to yourself, oh, I'm female. I can't tell a preacher man that he's wrong, that he could be more accurate. No, far from it. Priscilla was able to tell Apollos more. Even though he was eloquent, mighty in the scriptures, instructed, fervent, and accurate, Priscilla was able to give him some help. She could bring him further along. And the same is true today. So they taught privately from charity. They taught more accurately. There's always room for additional accuracy in Christian teaching. And we also see further ministry without Paul, not just Aquila and Priscilla, not just Apollos, but also in verse 27, Apollos is ready to leave Turkey and go to Greece. He wants to go probably to Corinth. And so the church writes a letter exhorting the disciples to receive him. That's ministry without Paul. As The Ephesian church says to the Corinthian church, hey, Apollos is a good guy. Take him in. Listen to his teaching. The kingdom is spreading without Paul. The church doesn't have to say, oh, I don't know, Apollos has never met Paul. 
Is Apollos in the apostolic tradition? Does he follow the teachings of Paul? We don't know. We can't ask Paul. No, the church listened to him and said, he's got it right. He's safe to be sent on to Corinth. So what did Apollos do when he went on to Corinth without Paul? Well, he was a great help. He greatly helped those who had believed. Having a fervent, accurate, eloquent teacher can be a tremendous help. If you're lost, if you're struggling, if you say, I've got questions and I have no idea where to find the answers and this whole Christianity thing is very confusing and I'm just not sure what to do next or what I ought to be doing or if I'm even doing the right thing. And then along comes Apollos and he answers your questions and he answers them beautifully and persuasively and profoundly with the Word of God. That's a big help. And that's what happened under Apollos. Paul summed it up in 1 Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered. As you all know, it takes one minute to plant a seed. But how many minutes does it take to go out and water that seed every day until the time of harvest comes? Well, that's what Apollos did. That was the help he was. And the second ministry that he had, not only watering, but he had the negative ministry of what we call apologetics or arguing. He vigorously refuted the Jews in public, verse 28. Now from our perspective, in our culture that's all about keeping it positive, we say, why couldn't he have just been content to water the seeds that Paul had planted? One way he watered them was through this ministry of refuting, debating, and arguing. Yes, arguing can be a ministry. In what ways? Well, it helps the intellectually honest come to believe. Those who are truly saying, but science has proven that evolution happened. Therefore, the Bible with its story of creation doesn't know what it's talking about. So I would be stupid to believe it. Someone who has powerfully refuted evolution can help those who are intellectually honest and want to believe. But don't see the way how they could do it because they're stuck on this thing or that thing. They're stuck on evolution. They're stuck on the integrity of the New Testament manuscripts. They're stuck on Christianity's bad treatment of women, supposedly, or this thing or that thing. Apollos helped people by refuting charges leveled against the church. He also strengthened the weak. There are people who believe, but who have been shaken in mind. You know, they say, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in prayer, and then they go read a book that says, look, prayer is just you talking to yourself and encouraging yourself to do better in certain areas, and then you're encouraged, and then you do better. And they say, oh, well, that kind of makes sense. Maybe there is no God. Maybe I'm just talking to myself the whole time. And that's helping me. Maybe that's all I need to explain this. Well, again, a ministry like Apollos' that refutes that and says, well, wait a second. A lot of the things we pray about are things that aren't influenced by our own mindset. If I pray for rain, it doesn't matter what I think about rain. You know, if the rain comes and God answers that prayer, it wasn't because I changed myself. 
Or if I pray for an end to war between Russia and Ukraine, and then peace comes, that won't be because I changed myself or I talked to myself positively about that conflict. I didn't start it. Talking to me and myself well is not going to end it, and so on. That's the kind of ministry Apollos had. Refuting arguments, helping the intellectually honest, strengthening the weak, and, frankly, destroying the excuses of the dishonest. Those who say, Jesus, I don't believe in Jesus. The whole thing is stupid. But here's an intellectual veneer. Here's a smoke screen. Here's a reason I'm going to throw out that makes it sound like I actually have a good reason to not believe. So it could be, for instance, well, he vigorously refuted, in this context, the Jews. I was reading this week about the playwright David Mamet, uh, author of Glengarry Glen Ross and some other hits, if you've seen any of those. Anyway, he's a Jewish man, and he told the Wall Street, Jewer, Wall Street Journal interviewer, I would love to be a Christian. I would definitely accept Jesus as my Savior and all of that. He referred to the New Testament all the time. But he said, I can't do it because it's against my religion. Well, that, you know, we can feel with his plight and so on. Well, all my ancestors were Jewish, therefore I'm Jewish, therefore that's my religion, therefore I don't believe in Jesus, etc. But Apollos went and in public said, excuse me, right? If you can't change your religion because that's against your religion, then your religion is, there's nothing supporting it. It's just this closed, insane system of my religion is this, therefore I believe this, therefore it's my religion, therefore I believe it. And it's not founded on anything else. Apollos refuted those people too the intellectually dishonest, to show them, no, you're just being dishonest. You don't have a good reason not to believe in Jesus. You just don't want to. So that was Apollos' ministry. That helped the weak. And it all happened without Paul. Paul isn't there. Paul hasn't met Apollos. Paul doesn't endorse Apollos. But Apollos ministers in the church. So what did Apollos do? What was his main ministry? He showed from the scriptures that Jesus is God's anointed. He took the Bible and he said, here's this concept of God's anointed, the Messiah who will come and save the world. And here's Jesus of Nazareth. Look, he fits. Jesus is God's anointed. Jesus is the Christ. Not all of us are called to the ministry of apologetics and refuting opposing views. But we should all be able to go to the Bible and say, here is why Jesus is the Messiah. Here's why I believe that. Here's where the Old Testament predicts a Messiah. Here's how Jesus fits that prediction. So Luke doesn't make a big deal about ordination or lack thereof. He doesn't say Apollos was ordained as a pastor. He doesn't say Aquila was ordained as a pastor. He doesn't get into that because he doesn't let ministry start from 
what is my title? For Luke, ministry starts from what needs to be done. How can I help here? That was how ministry continued without Paul. So it should be in the church today. The kingdom is advancing through ordinary people in the church, being instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent, being eloquent, being mighty in the scriptures, and able to show each other why Jesus is the Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand the truth of your word, help us to see how accurately the eyewitnesses recorded your dealings with the human race in the past. And Father, thank you that ministry tied to its roots in the Bible in Jerusalem is ongoing in the church, even after the departure of the apostles. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done, that you would bless us today with your word. In Jesus' name, amen.